0: Katie Herzog, how's it going?
1: Hey Jesse, I uh, I got some news. Ooh! You know, I have a racist neighbor.
0: I do. He's basically the third co-host. And Patreon of this podcast and racism. Not to be confused with our Patreon. No,
1: sense. very different. Uh, so, racist yep. neighbor. He's 86 years old. Longtime listeners will have heard me talk about him before. And, and this is,
0: a, just to be clear, for not long time listeners, this is a man who you have personally bathed, or Jana has, or both? Yeah,
1: my wife, Jana. Were you
0: all bathing together? Your wife, Jana, bathing. Yeah. Okay. You know,
1: speaking of which, actually, quick detour on that. You know, I never say her name on this show. Yeah, we could use a detour, yeah.
0: given that we're 10 seconds into the show, but go ahead.
1: I never say her name on this show because I've been trying to protect her. You, however, have multiple times said her name on the show, so I asked her if it was okay to start saying her name, and she said it's fine. So You've definitely her said
0: her name on the show. I've never said I read it. her social security number because you asked me. <laughs>
1: One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. I
0: was make the same joke. Um Okay, well, Jana, you have a wife. Her name is Jana, and she yeah. bathes this old man while you film it. Is that how it well, works?
1: <laughs> well, I film it and his nose bleeds, so that's how it works. It's check us oh, out on Jesus OnlyFans. Christ. Okay, so the old man, eighty-six years old, he's he's racist. He's he's very he's like real racist. He's not like He's not, like, getting accused of racist on Twitter racist. He's, like, actually racist. Like, ask him sometime. Actually, don't ask him ever uh, what he thinks about the NBA.
0: <laughs> it's such a weird thing to be racist. Of. Like,
1: Oh, he's racist about everything, not just the NBA. Anyway, so uh, the news is that his brother is moving in with him. His brother is moving from Michigan. He sold his house. So I'm going to have two racists on my hands. And this one is so racist that when he was – Uh, In prison for a diamond heist, he joined the Aryan Nation. And you might think like, you know what? Everybody in prison has to join a race gang. You have, you to. have to. Right. We, we well, he continued there, yeah. up with it, uh, which I'm pretty sure because I saw photos of his house, of the inside of his house. A lot of Confederate flags. There is only one reason for a man from Michigan to have Confederate flags, Jesse. Anyway, he's going to be my problem soon.
0: Is he older or younger than the 86-year-olds?
1: He's five years younger, so he's 80, but I think he's like this an old eighty.
0: A spry, I was gonna say he's a spry eighty. And, yeah. Okay. So probably more racist than the racist guy.
1: I think more racist. They also don't get along apparently, and there's lots of guns involved in this situation and in this household. So it's possible I'll have two racists and then I'll have no racists very quickly.
0: Katie, I've, I've said this before, but like when it comes <laughs> to you and and personal danger, I you <laughs> represent a a set amount of my income. Mm-hmm. And an amount I'm not willing to forego at this point. So please be careful. And to a lesser extent, I care about you personally. But mostly the money, just d- don't d- – can you maybe like back – can you wind down your relationship now that he has an even younger and more racist brother to bathe him?
1: I'm I'm hoping that I can. I'm hoping that either that All I right. can or that they kill each other without killing anyone else outside of the household.
0: Yeah. Well, um, good. We'll l- see. Stay <laughs> tuned, folks. I hope we can get uh, even more Racist Brother updates every week. But uh, thank you for that, Katie.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Jesse, how was the uh, fire gala? I saw photos. I saw you were
0: there. Speaking of racism, uh, yes, the Foundation mm-hmm. for Individual Rights in Expression, not Education, uh, had a gala. Oh, is it
1: gala? It's not gala. It's gala.
0: It was pretty gay. Yeah. I guess it was a gala. Gala was awesome. It was way fancier than the stuff I usually do. A couple observations. One was that... Um, you know, this is one of the few places where like a fair number of people knew who I was. I got multiple comments, as I always do, that I was taller than people expected. I I tweet so short and so womanly, yeah, that I regularly people tell me they thought I was a short woman, which maybe on the inside I am. The other thing was like uh, I hate to say this, but a lot of people asked if you were there and seemed disappointed somewhat disappointed that you weren't. And I kept saying Katie hates people. She would never come to an event like this. She hates yeah. the entire fire board. She hates Killer Mike, uh the keynote speaker. Um but yeah, Killer Mike gave an awesome uh speech. So it was a really good night. I was very grateful I could go. Thank you to uh Fire for hooking me up.
1: Yeah I heard uh I heard that Camille was the MC and Killer Mike was there. And so I I, I thought I had this vision of you introducing yourself to Killer Mike having a whole conversation with him where you thought that he was Camille and he thought that you were a little dicky
0: <laughs> that's good did that happen no one would actually confuse those two they're very uh, physically different I, there's, you might Camille let me put it this way I'm going to put it as least weirdly as possible Camille has uh-huh. a tight bond <laughs> he knows it he's not know tight it. like he's got a little bulk to him but like <laughs> it's like he's in good shape killer mike would not claim to be in good shape he's a large man who was toweling himself off the sweat off as i would if i gave a keynote he gave a great speech i had a really fun time katie what is the name of this increasingly fancy podcast this
1: is blocked and reported and i'm katie Hersog
0: and i'm jesse single we're going to talk about health We're going to talk about both feline health and, less importantly, human health.
1: We are. I have a crazy story for you uh, later in the show about a particularly terrible cat disease. Mm,
0: A bad cat disease, huh? Bad cats? Yes. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about long COVID, the latest article in The Atlantic about long COVID and uh, some thoughts I have about it.
1: Uh, But Jesse, before we get to that, can I fill you in on what you've been missing on Twitter? Yes. Chaos, Jesse. Absolute chaos. Chaos. Yesterday on April 20th on 420, Elon took away all of the legacy blue check marks. So now the only people who are verified are people who subscribe to Twitter blue with is this like money making scheme that he has. So now we have this bizarrely funny situation where the same people who spent years complaining about blue checks are now themselves blue checks. And the people who were the subject
0: of those complaints
1: are no longer actually blue checks. It's a real role reversal situation here.
0: Can I tell you something? I I knew about this. I do. I do keep One eye on Twitter just because I'm no shit. I want to protect you. But one reason I knew about this is because I was leaving my in person therapy appointment and my therapist asked me about it. (laughs) My normie therapist asked me what I thought like, what was up with the blue check? What about Elon? I was like, Did you start crying immediately? They took my blue check. I was like, We need to do another session. Sat back down. (laughs) Uh, double feature. Yeah. It's okay. Wait. So, so the only blue checks left are the blue checks you can buy. Yes. So you don't have. How do you feel about not having a blue tag? I
1: I so I knew that this was coming, and I thought that I would feel something. I feel nothing. I didn't. I I really did. Like,
0: but you never feel anything about anything.
1: No, I feel. I is it, I've, is it long COVID? It's I feel. I do feel things. I feel things for dogs, as we all know. Yeah. Um. I yeah. I did think that this was gonna like pain me a little bit because it's a it is a status symbol. It bestows this, or it was a status symbol. It bestowed this this ridiculous. Uh, veneer of legitimacy to you to me personally that I frankly didn't deserve so I thought that I would feel a little bit chagrined that my blue check was taken away but I, I don't at all because now the blue check is embarrassing it's cringe it's no longer a status symbol what it says is you are willing to pay eight, Elon Musk eight dollars a month for what used to be a status symbol so I'm glad that it's taken away but what this resulted in was exactly what you'd expect is, which is people impersonating celebrities and brands.
0: That's exactly what I said to my therapist. <laughs> let's get really? into this. No, I was like on my way out. Though, I was like, I don't care. Except, it's just like everyone knows what's going to happen. There's mm-hmm. going to be like, and I, I use my example because I'm the the most famous celebrity on Twitter. I don't want to give anyone ideas, but you could pretty easily. Well, I shouldn't say this, right? You, for example, someone could take your name spell it out, use your middle initial and just impersonate you and have a blue check. And how does Elon not understand that's going to immediately become a problem?
1: Well, not only that, so you don't even have because nobody has a blue check anymore except for the people who paid with it. So there can just be a lot of more, a lot more impersonation accounts that aren't verified that are still going to confuse the user about who is legitimate and, and who isn't. Yeah. So, Jesse, I collected a few of my favorites for you. Will you look at the notes uh, and click that link there?
0: This is at NYC gov. This is an authentic Twitter account representing the New York City government. This is the only account for at NYCGov run by New York City government. Yeah, and then and then someone responds at NYC underscore government. No, you're not. This account is the only authentic Twitter account representing and run by the New York City government. This New York, this is like the Spider Man meme, but with the most important city in the world. It's
1: chaos, chaos. And I honestly, you're the real.
0: I'm the real New yeah, York. Yeah,
1: and I don't actually know which one is real. Probably the first one, but I don't actually know. Okay, click the
0: next link. God, this is not going well. Okay, so this is a- at NYT cooking. And it looks like the New York Times cooking logo, a traditional dish with a personal touch. See our recipe for authentic king's hand. And it looks like a severed <laughs> king's hand that's a cookie over a Greek salad. Yeah, it, I'm so confused. It's
1: just a disgusting photo of, yeah, what looks like a, a cookie in the shape of a hand over a salad. Yeah, But because this this comes from an account that has the New York Times cooking logo, it looks and you and now the new york times cooking logo won't have any sort of demarcation to show that this is legitimate it looks like the new york times posted this extremely bizarre disgusting rep- recipe Okay. Now do the last one there.
0: Virgil, Texas. Okay. Yes, I'm back. And it's time for me to explain a few things and come clean about some others. One out of question mark.
1: Okay. So, so this is going to need some, some, uh, some backstory. Can you explain
0: it? This is a reference to former Chapo Trap House co-host Virgil, Texas, who was the subject. Oh, and he co-hosted a thing with, um, Brianna, uh, Joy, Joy Gray. Yeah. there was some sort of thing where someone was claiming he like DM'd with her when she was underage or something and I hesitate to even look I don't like Virgil Virgil Texas is really obnoxious but I in much the same way I was forced to defend um Noah Berlatsky this just when I read these claims it just seems so fuzzy but it was enough to really like fuck him over and sort of drive him I think off social media He disappeared. He disappeared.
1: He was co-hosting this new show with Brianna Joy Gray. The show is a big success big. and he has just absolutely disappeared. So she doesn't have a co-host anymore. And so presumably he's not getting, you know, half the buckets of money that she's making every month from this show.
0: Yeah. But so that for the kind of internet nerd who follows this stuff, for Virgil Texas to pop up back online, this would have been a really big deal. But it's actually someone who's at Real Rick Paulus.
1: Yeah. And so the next two tweets are this guy, Rick Paulus, promoting his own book. But the, the name, the handle, and the, the image...
0: That was this that, that was. Vir- Virgil... Virgil, Texas is like actual old avatar. I'm ashamed to know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The avatar and the name are Virgil, Texas. So if you're not paying attention, it looks like this was Virgil, Texas.
0: So this is... This is the dumbest shit ever. Like, I'm sorry, but anyone... Look, I know in theory, Elon Musk is smart about some things, but... Not people. Everything... Not people. (laughs) That's a little... uh... Anti neurotypical. <laughs> That's like you're like trying to make a comment about his a- autism, but I didn't politely say you're like, I didn't let's say just it. say he's more into <laughs> objects than people. Um, he's
1: he is not a word cell. He's not a people cell. <laughs> he is a shape rotator. He's, let's say there's. Let's just say
0: I'm to phrase this as politely as possible. His head is full of rotating shapes, <laughs> and, and sometimes there's too many shapes, and there's rotating. They're rotating too quickly. Is that fair? That is fair. Please don't harass us online. Um this this whole thing was so unbelievably stupid because the only legitimate use of uh the check mark was exactly this because there's some public figures or semi-public figures who should you should have this to indicate when they're real because if not this is what will happen and I think very early in his tenure Elon Um, drunk on rotating shapes decided to turn this into sort of like a premium subscription product, which I will say, and and I don't mean any offense to people, but I was struck by how many people, as soon as he turned on that option, people with like two or 300 followers Paid for it. I was shocked by how many did. Although I don't know if that – like it was a zoomed out success or maybe I'm just seeing a lot of them.
1: I think you're seeing them because there has been some reporting. I don't know how good it is, but there has been some reporting on the number of people who actually signed up for Twitter Blue. And these are not numbers that are going to make up for the fact that he blew $44 billion on this on this product. I mean I, like there are a lot of people who continue to defend this plan. And I can think of a few reasons to, to subscribe to Twitter Blue. You like Elon and want him to succeed. No, no accounting t- for taste. You want the added features, which basically comes down to longer tweets and an edit button and longer video.
0: Oh, wait. So that's who determines who can do the longer tweets? You mm-hmm. have to pay for it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not doing that. No. Okay, got And you
1: want the clout that used to come with the blue check, but the thing is, by ditching the legacy check marks and having a, now having a blue check is the opposite of clout. It's like the mark of a dupe. It's a scarlet letter.
0: It's sort of like being associated with Gawker in 2008 versus yeah. 2023. Like, in 2023, imagine pretending to have a connection to Gawker in 2023.
1: So here's why I will never pay for Twitter Blue. For one, Elon has made so many bad decisions when it comes to running this No, company.
0: one is you're an incredibly cheap uh, person. That is true. Let's just be straightforward about this.
1: Hey, yeah. I did waste way more than $8 on a van. Uh, so he's made a lot of stupid <laughs> decisions, starting with... Yeah, but the van was so shitty
0: and <laughs> spent so little on it, it just immediately broke it down. It did
1: look good in one Instagram photo. Uh, his first stupid decision was buying Twitter... And I don't want to reward bad behavior. Like, you don't give a dog a treat after it pisses on the sofa, and that's what paying for Twitter is to me. Uh, Two, I provide content to Twitter for free. So I'm not going to pay Elon to provide content when it's the content that brings people to the site in the first place. Not mine in particular, all content. And three, it's embarrassing. Um, But he did do something that could have been funny if it was intentional, but I don't think it was. So there are a few celebrities who are like real celebrities, not journalist blue check marks, which is a, a, a word we're not going to be able to use anymore, um, who are like – these celebrities are like, no, bitch, I'll never pay for Twitter blue. You pay me, which I think is valid because, of course, one of the draws of Twitter has been the chance to interact with famous people. Yeah, Although a lot of famous people stop tweeting when they realize your tweets can and will be used against you forever. Anyway, so LeBron James, Stephen King, William Shatner, a few others all said they weren't going to pay for Twitter blue. So then – Elon kills the legacy check, except for those three still have a blue check mark. And this could have been sort of a funny joke where Elon is like intentionally making look like they actually do pay for Twitter blue, but he's not that that clever. So he admitted that what really happened is that he just is straight up paying for their accounts.
0: Oh, my God. That's so pathetic.
1: It is. And I suspect he did this because he doesn't want them to leave Twitter. But of course, now it's embarrassing to have a blue check mark. So Stephen King was just like, to be clear, I did not pay for this. Which, this makes me think that if Elon actually wanted this to pay for itself, he would allow users to purchase blue check marks for their enemies. (laughs) I would pay for one for you. I'm
0: foisting the blue check. I'm foisting the blue check upon you.
1: Hilariously, Rebecca Jones, friend of the pod, Florida woman, she paid for a check. She subscribed to to Twitter Blue and was appropriately embarrassed about this. So she claimed that Elon Musk paid for her.
0: She just made that up because, of course, Elon Musk did it. Yeah, of course. Dude, she lies so much.
1: Yeah. and There's also been this, like, I just want to concede there has been an overreaction where people are leaving Twitter because he took their check marks away. Like, Jason Alexander, George Costanza, he's one of them. What? SCOTUS blog. Yeah. SCOTUS blog also said they were leaving, which is also hilarious because they were like, find us on Instagram. They're not verified on Instagram. That's also cringe. And, like, of all of the shit that Elon has done since taking over this platform, firing thousands of people, blocking Substack, pretending to care about free speech while punishing those who personally offend him, there's a long list. (sighs) If the thing that makes you take a brave moral stand against Elon Musk is getting your blue check taken away, it seems like maybe your priorities are a little bit skewed towards, I don't know,
0: yourself. That bums me out about Jason Alexander because, like, he, in portraying both one of the best and funniest and cringiest. TV characters of all time I thought that Jason Alexander himself was like acting post cringe yeah. or incapable of cringe leaving Twitter because they took away your blue very chat very cringe um, you're supposed to leave Twitter for the reasons I did to avoid a race. <laughs> Because federal marshals are closing The HIPAA up.
1: police are knocking at your door. The
0: HIPAA police.
1: So it's been uh, chaos on Twitter even more so than usual. And the, the like actual, actual unfortunate thing is that it really is going to be harder to get good information. And I'm not saying that because a bunch of like shitty opinion journalists like myself no longer have checks. The old verification system really was biased. It was totally flawed. It was unfair. But it did tell you that people were who they said they were or that organizations were who they said they were. And that's just gone now. So just wait till there's some kind of an emergency and people are trying to figure out who to trust. It just, this does make it significantly harder. But of course, Elon wanted to exact revenge on a bunch of uh, journalists who hurt his feelings and it only cost him $44 billion to do it.
0: I noticed uh, a seeming uptick in these sorts of shrill, toxic types of Twitter people who view Substack as fascist who are now mm-hmm. active on Substack. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on yeah. there, including a certain non-pedophile we devoted an episode uh, to. No,
1: Noah? <laughs> alleged no, we don't need to say alleged a non-pedophile.
0: Bloa blow a yeah.
1: Um Okay, Jesse, last thing on this before we move on. So I, I wanted to see if anyone was using this opportunity to impersonate Jesse Single. Click that link, would you?
0: Thank you. No, nobody cares enough.
1: Okay, he's lying. There's about a dozen here, Jesse.
0: I hope they're good. They say positive things.
1: <laughs> a lot of them are private, so I'll have to request to follow them. Okay, please do. All right, do you want to move on to talking about COVID?
0: Yeah, Katie, let's um talk about Ed Yong's latest article in The Atlantic. Uh, you know who Ed Yong is, right? I do. He's a writer for The Atlantic. Good stuff. Way to use context clues. Yeah, he's a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who covers – well, the science writer, but he won the Pulitzer for his coverage of the coronavirus uh, for The Atlantic. So his latest article is headlined, Long COVID is being erased. Again, sub-headline, what was once outright denial has morphed into a subtler dismissal. So for those new to long COVID, um, and I'd like to think 80 to 90% of our audience is just Mm bedbound one way or another.
1: Why else would they be listening to a podcast?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Our podcast, at least. So the CDC basically defines long COVID as this group of symptoms that some people who have COVID grapple with for a long time afterward. And as we'll get to in a minute, the symptom list is long, and it's sort of hard to know there's not much diagnostic clarity about exactly who has it or who's most at risk or like why they get it. There's some thought that maybe it hits you harder if you're not vaccinated or if you had a more severe infection. I think even that is somewhat disputed.
1: I'm just trying to think of the the Venn gri- diagram specifically of people on Twitter who complain about long COVID and who haven't been vaccinated. And I think the number of people in that particular Venn diagram is zero, just on Twitter.
0: Not high, just on Twitter, but not that's a uh, mm-hmm. you know by a sample. Um, so yeah, there, there's serious uncertainty about essentially every aspect of long COVID. And if you read Ed Yong's article, his basic point is that about 10% of Americans infected with COVID get long COVID, but that there's been this attempt to downplay the condition and ignore it, or to even claim sufferers are, you know, making it up or suffering from psychosomatic rather than like, quote unquote, real physical illness. So as a result, the long haulers, as he calls them, and they call themselves are suffering.
1: Okay. And why does Ed Yong say we're ignoring this?
0: So for one thing, he says there's a lot of stigma that might prevent people with long COVID from talking about it openly. We'll get back to that. Yeah,
1: like herpes.
0: (laughs) Just like herpes. Long COVID is
1: the new herpes. Long herpes.
0: I guess all herpes is long (laughs) herpes. Uh, But he thinks the biggest factor is that we want, as a society, we want to think COVID is over. And if we talk about long COVID, that illusion will be punctured. He uses the phrase mission accomplished in a derogatory way, which I think intends for the reader to imagine George W. Bush claiming the war in Iraq was over. So here's a quote. Most of all, long COVID is a huge impediment to the normalization of COVID. It's an insistent indicator that the pandemic is not actually over, that policies allowing the coronavirus to spread freely still carry a cost, that improvements such as better indoor ventilation are still wanting, that the public emergency may have been lifted but an emergency still exists, and that millions cannot return to pre-pandemic life. Quote, everyone wants to say goodbye to COVID, Dougall told me. That's uh, Priya Duggal, an epidemiologist and co-lead on the John Hopkins long... Covid long study, uh, and if long covid keeps existing and people keep talking about it, covid doesn't go away. End quote. The people who still live with covid are being ignored so that everyone else can live with ignoring it. So those are some explanations for why we're not all talking about long covid that much. But another explanation for why we don't talk about covid more is that, as Young himself notes, it's a very vague condition marked by like almost any symptom imaginable. And that because of that, it it may be drawing in a significant number of people who think they have it, but who don't actually have it. And that makes it challenging to diagnose and separate out who exactly has what in this context.
1: Are you talking about conditions like chronic fatigue, Uh, Lyme disease, stuff like that. Okay. And does Ed young mention that possibility?
0: Not really. Like, so he talks about how hard it is to identify or diagnose long COVID and all the different symptoms, but other than a brief mention, um, sort of knocking down the idea that the disease is psychosomatic, um, and I don't think it's an on-off thing where it's like either all, all psychosomatic or all caused by a physical pathogen. I, I think it's a bit of a straw man. Um, he just sort of takes it as a given that people who say they have long COVID symptoms have long COVID. So from the start, his estimate that about 10% of Americans with COVID develop long COVID comes from this survey item sent out by the Census Bureau and the CDC, uh, this thing called the National Household Pulse Survey. So let me just read this item to you. This is the item where if people answer yes, Ed Yong considers him to have long COVID. Did you have any symptoms lasting three months or longer that you did not have prior to having coronavirus or COVID-19? Long-term symptoms may include tiredness or fatigue, difficulty thinking, concentrating, forgetfulness, or memory problems, sometimes referred to as brain fog, difficulty breathing or shortness of breath, joint or muscle pain, fast beating or pounding heart, also known as heart palpitations, chest pain, dizziness on standing, changes to taste, smell, or inability to exercise. And and the only answer is yes or no. Go go on, Katie.
1: I have long COVID.
0: <laughs> Why do you say that?
1: I have all of those symptoms.
0: Because <laughs> of those menstrual changes you were talking yes, about?
1: I ha- yes. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: You have all those symptoms?
1: Yes. Especially menstrual changes. The the blood isn't coming out of my Barbie pouch anymore. It's coming out of my butthole.
0: <laughs> what do you What do you notice about that list of symptoms?
1: They're vague. They seem like they could apply to lots of different diseases or conditions. I suppose. Yeah,
0: they can. They include both like stuff that's more likely to suggest like a serious physical problem, like your frequently mentioned menstrual changes in your Barbie pouch, mm-hmm. uh, but much vaguer stuff like. Brain fog or difficulty concentrating, and and a lot of these could be the result of other uh, conditions. I
1: think this is, this looks like all the symptoms of menopause.
0: <laughs> well, one one other journalist I was discussing this with said that um, some of them are symptoms of perimenopause, which occurs earlier. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So that's when your Barbie pouch shrinks before you think it's going to shrink. It's like putting it in the in the dryer.
0: I can't stand that term, Barbie pelts. <laughs> I'm with Kid Rock. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not with Kid Rock. Shoot those cans. Shoot those cans. Um, the other thing is like th- that we need to take into account here if we're going to approach this subject scientifically. The pandemic was a unique societal trauma. Like As Americans, we had never been through anything like it Including 9-11. Three weeks after 9-11, I, I hate to say it, life was... You're saying COVID was the real 9-11? COVID was the real 9-11. Three weeks after <laughs> 9-11, most of us were like, sort of back to the normal rhythm of life. How long did it take? I mean, you're different because you're a hermit, but for most of and us... Look,
1: no, no, no. I'm different because I'm a Muslim, and so it wasn't back to the normal rhythms of life for me. I was discriminated against.
0: No, well, I'm talking about COVID.
1: <laughs> oh, COVID, yeah.
0: Um. The... The connection between mind and body is really complicated, but it's quite credible to imagine that the psychic shock of an event as awful as COVID and as long-lasting as COVID will leave a mark on people. If you got COVID, you got COVID at a time when you're probably also dealing with social isolation or losing loved ones or losing your job or some combination of all this stuff. And that sort of psych... Well, in the beginning, that's true, yes. Yes. I mean, it, it, a lot of this lasted a while. It was a big shock. Sure. I mean, if, when people go through psychological trauma, it can bring physical symptoms. So you're not like mm-hmm. – the way this question is asked, you're basically asking people like, since this big, horrible, traumatic thing have you, happened, have you experienced any of these symptoms? It could be COVID. It could be other stuff, right? Right. Gotcha. So – one researcher working for the Federal Reserve also noted that, quote, the pulse survey suffers from an extremely low response rate, around 6% in recent survey waves. In addition, respondents cannot be linked over time, precluding longitudinal analyses that would facilitate causal inference about the effects of long COVID. For these reasons, the Pulse data may be more useful as a barometer of qualitative patterns than as a reliable gauge of magnitude. So that's another warning sign. If only 6% of people are responding to this, you might be more likely to get responses from people who are sick, which could skew the numbers. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah. Young doesn't really mention any of this. He doesn't mention any of the fuzziness of, like, figure out who has long COVID, of of how broad this survey is, and it's very, to my mind, high likelihood that it will overestimate the number of people with long COVID. He also takes his very particular political stance on the question of whether we should trust that people's self-diagnoses are accurate. Here's what he writes, quote, "'To a degree, I sympathize with some of the skepticism regarding long COVID because the condition challenges our typical sense of what counts as solid evidence.' Blood tests, electronic medical records, and disability claims all feel like rigorous lines of objective data. Their limitations become obvious only when you consider what the average long hauler goes through. And those details are often cast aside because they are, quote, anecdotal and by implication unreliable. This attitude is backwards. The patient's stories are the ground truth against which all other data must be understood. Gaps between the data and the stories don't immediately invalidate the latter. They just as likely show the holes in the former. Katie, what do, you, what do you make as a journalist, uh, an alleged journalist, of this mm-hmm. idea that the patient's stories are the ground truth against which all other data must be understood?
1: This is sort of like this, uh, this attitude that we should value, quote unquote, lived experience rather than empirical data. I just – as a journalist, I think it's a, a strange impulse to take, but also an increasingly common one or at least a common one among – Ed Young in particular –
0: I mean, I have trouble parsing exactly what that means in this context. The patient stories are the ground truth against which all other data must be understood. Like, it sounds noble, and obviously it's important to listen to patients' stories. But, like, the whole point of doctors – And journalists, for that matter, is to evaluate stories and try to figure out which ones are true and which are not and and which Mm -hmm. are somewhere in the middle. So there's probably some people who think they have long COVID and who do. And there's probably other people who think they have long COVID and they don't. Um, So even though doctors and psychologists at this point have learned a lot about how mind and body interact. And that includes like crazy demonstrations of the placebo effect where you literally inject someone with salt water and they start to feel better. None of this is in Yang's article.
1: And why do you think he ignored this?
0: I'm I'm migrating a little bit here, but but when you connect this story with some of Yang's other work, I think part of the problem is like what happens when journalists start to see themselves as an advocate for a downtrodden group? Like there's nothing wrong with that being part of your goal as a journalist or part of your identity even. If I... Go to report on a civil war in Africa in a parallel universe Never where i much more courageous than I am. Do they have good Wi-Fi in the Congo? <laughs> um, if I do uh, some of the cojones to go report on a civil war, I'm obviously doing that partly to tell the stories of victims because they might not be told otherwise. That's good. That's a perfectly journalistic thing to do. But I think if I start to sort of exalt the victims and to not treat their testimony with any sort of skepticism... That's not good journalism, and it's not like a perfect parallel with what Young is doing, but I think there's like a severe lack of context here. That might cause people to overestimate the prevalence of long COVID and, um, you know, overestimate how sure we can be that someone has it solely on the basis of their say-so. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, I I remember seeing some reports from the beginning of COVID when, of course, PCR tests were less available. But some reports, and I don't know, I can't really evaluate how how good these were, that a significant number of people who reported having long COVID – didn't have the antibodies for COVID. So that's to say they didn't, they were never infected with COVID in the first place.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that wouldn't be surprising because again, people like, people feel crappy in a lot of ways. They have all sorts of symptoms. They might have some other long term illness and they latch on to explanations for it. Like we've seen this in a lot of other contexts, and we've talked about some of them on this show. Um, so the problem is if you just, if, there's got to be a line here where like you you want patients and patient advocates to have a voice, but they can't be the final word. Like uh, at one point, Young writes, quote, a British survey of almost a thousand long haulers found that 63% experienced overt discrimination because of their illness, at least sometimes. And 34% sometimes regretted telling people that they have long COVID. So that's a- Just like herpes. <laughs> that's a- um. That's a PLOS One study, and I, I noticed it, and I found it to be so shoddy that I wrote it up for my newsletter last year, even though I usually stay away from this subject. They literally just took online groups of people who say they have long COVID. So the entire sample is people who say they have long COVID, and they said, how do you feel discriminated against because of that? Katie, do you think that's a, a mm-hmm. valid and reliable way of gauging how often it is that, that people are discriminated against for having long COVID?
1: And they recruited these people from online? Absolutely not.
0: There's like a lot of basic social scientific reasons not to trust a survey like that. For example, if people who are more likely to think they have a chronic illness are also more likely to um attribute ambiguous interactions with others in a negative way, there you go. You would expect when asked, are people treating you in a negative way for this reason? They'll say yes. Like it's just, it's not good survey work. So if like, if you're one of the best science reporters in the country, you shouldn't cite this just because it supports your theory that that long COVID is a, is a big deal.
1: Do you think he's actually one of the best science reporters in the country?
0: I mean, he has that reputation.
1: Right. But do you think that?
0: I don't know. I didn't, I'm not going to lie. I didn't, I don't know. (laughs) I didn't read that much about like COVID, maybe just because I felt so wiped out by like the impact of COVID on my life. I didn't read a lot of his journalism. And you had long COVID. And I have severe long COVID, as I've been saying and and raising money about. I will say- That's why you're so tired, (laughs) y'all. The one time I saw Ed Young brush up against an area I know something about, which is how to interpret polling- I thought he got like a basic thing pretty wrong and that he misinterpreted this poll in a way that supported his political priors, which is are that we should spend a lot of money, um, government money, to sort of recover and build back better from COVID, which I personally am fine with as a liberal. But like um, I'll include a link to this – This the I think the only other time I've ever critiqued him in that, but I – I don't know. I thought he didn't read the study carefully before summing it up in an oversimplified way in the pages of The Atlantic. Well,
1: he's also written about gender dysphoria, right? What do you think about his work on, uh, on that?
0: Oh, yeah. He wrote... That's a whole other thing. Uh, I I think there might be a pattern here of he's very skeptical of studies that don't match his mm-hmm. own priors. And we now know that Ed Young thinks that like we shouldn't be doing critical reporting on um, gender dysphoria stuff because he signed that open letter to the New York times. Yeah. The New York times open letter. Um, of course he did. So I don't know. I think there's a little bit of a pattern here where I've definitely fallen victim to the same thing. You need to be careful with confirmation bias, but you should, you should look at all studies skeptically because all studies have weaknesses. But I think, I don't know, like now that I've read this long COVID thing, I can come up with a few instances in which he seems to not be very skeptical of studies that support messages he's hoping to impart, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And one thing I noticed just as a reader, like I don't know anything about COVID. I don't know anything about long COVID. I haven't had COVID. I might be the last person in America who hasn't ever had COVID, except for my racist neighbors. You're just,
0: you're just so healthy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm just so, so healthy and uh, I don't leave the house. But as a reader who knows that Ed Young is supposed to be, you know, one of the best, if not the best science journalists in the country, Pulitzer winning, I would read this article and and just believe everything that he says, and 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 without any sort of expertise in this area, it's really hard to evaluate the qua- evaluate the quality yep. of his of his reporting. So I did read his article, and then I went and I read another article. This one is in uh, the New Republic. It's by a, a, re- a reporter named Natalie Scher. Jesse, do you know her work? Yeah, she's been really good on things like Havana Syndrome, and she's also written about long COVID. Then I read a piece that she wrote. And her piece was much more skeptical. Not that – she didn't say that long COVID doesn't exist, but she talked much more about this mind-body connection that you're talking about here. And I read her piece, and I was totally convinced by her piece too. And so this is – as a news consumer, it's really hard to know. I have no reason to think that Ed Young knows any more about this than Natalie Scher does. I have no reason to think that she knows more about it than he does. So as a consumer, I'm just sort of left in this space like – I honestly do not you know, know what to believe. I don't know if long COVID exists, or if it's psychosomatic, if it's a software problem or a hardware problem, which is something that Natalie Schur writes about. I'm just, I'm I'm as baffled as I was before I actually read these articles.
0: Yeah. I'm actually embarrassed that I haven't read the Schur one yet. Cause that, that came across my desk forever ago. And I think she does good work, but um, I would say if you read two articles on this and one of them does address the mind body connection and, and how difficult it is when symptoms are this vague and wide ranging and and one doesn't, I would always err on the side of the journalist who gives you the more it's complicated account.
1: But Jesse, he won a Pulitzer. Yeah, it,
0: that that is true. Um uh sure um was not the only other journalist to like look at this in a sensitive but appropriately skeptical way. Back in 2021, Stuart Ritchie, um he's a buddy of mine, I met him in person once. He's a really good science writer and psychologist He did a piece for Unheard. Um, The headline does not do justice to it. The headline is, Does Long COVID Really Exist? The article is much more nuanced. Uh, He just pointed out that like, while there was all this conservative nonsense about COVID going on, this was 2021, and some of that nonsense he and his friends had helped debunk by making a website look at common conservative claims, he pointed out that like, on the left, people were being a bit too credulous about Long COVID. And he didn't deny – That There's something here, but he pointed out that there were, quote, wildly varying preference estimates, end quote, and that there was a ton we don't know. Uh, Let me just read one quote from that. Part of the confusion also has to do with the grab bag. Quote, "...non-specificity end quote of the long COVID symptoms. We know that fatigue, pain, and many of the other commonly reported complaints can be caused by a whole range of other disorders, including psychosomatic ones, or can appear in the absence of any known diagnosis. Medical science is notoriously bad at explaining, treating, or even properly describing symptoms like fatigue and chronic pain." This is something we've struggled with for decades, much to the dismay of endless numbers of patients who often feel ignored and misunderstood by their doctors. Um, dot, dot, dot. Advocates for long COVID patients point to embarrassing mistakes made in the past, like Freud's idea that, quote, repressed erotic ideas, end quote, were the cause of some physical symptoms. I mean, that's true. I know because I just did uh, the no the nofap thing. <laughs> but again, I think if you're trying to figure out who to trust, the fact that... You know, to a certain degree, Stuart Ritchie and and now we can say Natalie sure are like they're sort of throwing up their hands and they're saying like, look, this is really complicated. Um, and and Young's article also reminded me of a great New York Magazine article my former colleague Molly Fisher wrote about chronic Lyme back in 2019. Do you remember this one?
1: I don't, but you know, I do have chronic Lyme, so I should read it.
0: <laughs> you have chronic everything. Um. You have chronic rudeness is what I've diagnosed with.
1: (laughs) I do have chronic Lyme. I sent you the picture, remember?
0: Oh, God. Yeah, I did not need that picture. (laughs) (laughs) That was not a joke. This was a a 2019 New York article. uh, Quote, maybe it's Lyme. What happens when illness becomes an identity? This was before COVID, of course, but Fisher made a lot of points that apply to long COVID as well. Chronic Lyme has, quote, no consistent symptoms, no fixed criteria, and no accurate test, end quote. She writes that, Quote, there are just enough openings in the standard account of Lyme disease, enough ambiguity about how this disease looks, how it works, and how it can be stopped to make it sound like a conceivable explanation for all kinds of symptoms. Start looking online, and the symptoms that chronic Lyme patients describe may well sound familiar. Brain fog is the big one everyone talks about, trouble thinking and focusing, forgetfulness. Then there's fatigue and pain, headaches, joint pain, muscle pain that won't go away, or maybe the pain does go away. It comes and goes. Or maybe there's nausea. Or your eyes hurt, or you've got panic attacks or bladder issues. Check, 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 check. Does any of this, yeah, does any of this sound familiar to like everyone? I mean, I mean, but but Lyme though,
1: Lyme like, and I say this because I did just literally have Lyme disease. There is a, you get a big fucking bullseye on your, in my case, on your butt. Oh no, Lyme disease
0: is, Lyme disease is totally real. But but Fisher points out that people who convince themselves they have chronic Lyme, um, and it's mostly women, which mirrors a pattern we see in some long COVID data. You know, people who convince themselves they have this and who may not, they fall victim to all sorts of quacks who offer them both a pat explanation for their distress and also treatments that in some cases are outright dangerous. Like people have actually died because they've had ports installed to help give them medicine for chronic Lyme they might not have and then they've gotten infections as a result.
1: Yeah, have you read Ross Douthat's work on chronic Lyme which he has?
0: Just a little bit. I mean, he wrote a whole book on it, right? Yeah,
1: I haven't read the book. I've read his some of his essays. And Ross is – this is one of those cases where, you know, I'm sort of a natural skeptic. I think a lot of people are fakers and whiners. But when Ross writes about this, I believe him. I believe the symptoms and he did these treatments, some of which are wacky as hell. And some of them he said worked. It could be the placebo effect, of course. And, of course, if you feel like shit and something makes you feel better, it doesn't – probably doesn't really matter if it's a placebo or not unless there are other – other complications based on the treatment.
0: Well, and again, but I want to be clear. I'm not saying that no one has long COVID or no one has, like, chronic right. Lyme. Like, these are serious diseases that could affect you in the long run, and maybe in some cases these treatments work. Although, in in medical research, like, the lowest quality of evidence possible is someone feels bad, then they take a thing, then they feel better, with, like, no comparison right. group, because, like, all sorts of stuff can go wrong there. But in terms of determining causality. um, So, yeah, the point is that, isn't that any of these people... Individually, like aren't telling the truth or accurately describing their symptoms. It's that like you you don't know. You can't know for sure what's going on, especially when you're talking about like conditions that start to have an online identity surrounding them. Too
1: bad there's not a test for that.
0: <laughs> Look, the chronic chronic Lyme to long COVID is a little bit apples and oranges. But I was just struck by like how differently Molly Fisher approached the subject as compared to how Yang approached long COVID. Like it it jumped out at me that Yang only focused on stigma and on the idea of people being too ashamed of long COVID to admit they had it. I'm sure that's true for some people, but anyone who has hung out in circles like ours knows that like at least when it comes to like elite liberal types, I don't feel like we're exactly shy about sharing our ailments. Doesn't it feel like the opposite of anything? Yes, it does. Too much. It's TMI. You literally, like you I don't know, man. It's like in terms of who to trust, can Yang is ignoring that we live in a world where chronic illness influencer is an actual phrase that describes an actual group of it's very successful online people. It's a job. Being chronically ill to make money is a full-time job. Yeah. Uh, so yeah.
1: I mean, I do I do have sympathy for people who have this or who feel like they have it. It does it's sort of a, a nightmare situation. The idea of being Especially if doctors can't yes. figure it out
0: or doubt. It wouldn't be yes. fun for doctors yeah. to doubt you, but it's partly the job of do- doctors to doubt you, right? Right.
1: And and there's so many other cases where you go to a doctor complaining of something and the doctor sort of just like yeah. throws their hand up. I don't know what it is. That happens. That's happened to me. And of course, the way that our medical system is structured when you go to a doctor, you're probably not getting much real attention. They have yeah. patient after patient after patient after patient. Your health insurance changes every year. Your doctor changes every year. The system is so fucked that it's. I think it's really hard to get adequate care for a lot of us. And so I feel real sympathy for these people.
0: But this was a point both in Fisher's article and this article I read in Slate that was like partly response to hers. Like, if you're an honest doctor and someone comes to you with these nonspecific symptoms and you're like you know, I'm not sure you could have chronic Lyme. I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure how to help you. That's the honest professional thing to do. If, But yeah. if on the other hand, you're like, yes, you definitely have chronic Lyme. Let's get you set up with regular appointments for me. They're $1,000 a pop. And that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's like these New York City doctors who just, some of whom are like facing at the time of Molly's article, we're like facing uh, investigations by the state board or whatever. Um, there's a real tricky balancing act here because you want to listen to patients and make them feel heard but it's it's sort of lying to them to be like, yep, you definitely have this. Let's get you started on treatment. I mean, mm-hmm. not it's not sort of lying. I, maybe some of these doctors have convinced themselves they're doing the right thing, but it's like it's not honest. Anyway, let me just let me wrap this up by reading one other thing Ed Young wrote from twenty twenty. I think this was his first ever article on long COVID. As many people reported brain fogs and concentration challenges as coughs or fevers. Some have experienced hallucinations, delirium, short-term memory loss, or strange vibrating sensations when they touch surfaces. So like, again, it's that balance. Someone who's experienced delirium or hallucinations or, or vibrations, I'm not sure, as a journalist, you're even doing them any favors by being like, yep, that's definitely long COVID, definitely not something psychological. So should we
1: write the polls for committee?
0: Yeah, exactly. We should um, seek to have him de I'm sure that will go yeah. well.
1: Let's at least get his blue check taken away.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to move on from sick people to sick cats. But first, housekeeping. Well, let's do it. Go for it. Let's see what you can remember.
1: We are a podcast. You can reach us at blockedandreportedpodcasts at gmail.com. There you can email us all of your chronic disease stories. Also stories about adult baby diaper lovers, Twitter blue checks, anything you want, send them there. Uh,
0: oh, we got we got one email from someone who wants to be connected with others, oh yeah. but I'm too lazy, so I said that she should send us a, a an
1: adult baby diaper. burner email.
0: Yeah hopefully by this time next week we'll be like if you're an abdl email this person to do whatever you people do
1: yes we are the place to go to connect with other adult baby diaper lovers apparently not sure how this happened also if you go to blocked you can become a primo a premium subscriber of this very show you get three extra episodes of this show every month you get access to our comment section which is the best comment section on the internet. I think that's not an exaggeration, right? In fuego, it's in fuego. fuego. Yes, it, it's lit. I think they say that, right?
0: It's lit. It's lit.
1: Um Jesse, did you turn on the subscriber chat? No. You're going to, right?
0: No. No. <laughs> well, so I ju- so I said I texted you about doing it, but then I realized like. I thought it would just like open up a chat room where subscribers could say whatever they want, but we need to post something to like spark the conversation, and that was too much pressure.
1: Okay, so we have not turned on the subscriber chat, but
0: well, maybe. if you feel if you're a subscriber, and you feel strongly about the chat function, let us know and we can look into it.
1: Okay, uh, what else? We have a subreddit. You can find that at blockedandreported.reddit.com. Yep.
0: Is that right? Yeah, you're betting okay. a thousand, I think, with the URLs, which is unusual for you because of your chronic fatigue syndrome.
1: We have merch barpardmerch.com? Yep. All right. And is that
0: it? What is your mom's middle name? Oh,
1: she's Catholic. She doesn't have one.
0: Wait, is that actually a thing? I don't know. Oh. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, definitely check us, check us out at blocked We've got some uh, primo episodes to record coming up. Yeah. Should be good.
1: Okay, Jesse, are you ready to move on?
0: Let's do it. Cats.
1: Okay, this was one of the more complicated stories that I have ever worked on. Huge thank you to Trace for helping me uh, unspoil this particular story. It was very complicated.
0: Spool. Spool. Unspool.
1: Jesse, what do you think about cats?
0: You know, I like cats. I'm a nonpartisan in the never-ending cat-dog wars. I know you favor dogs. Mm -hmm. I think cats and dogs both serve valuable niches in today's modern economy.
1: You're non-binary.
0: I'm non-binary when it comes to cats and dogs.
1: Okay, so our segment today... Begins with an email we received from a listener named Allison. Here's what she wrote. I have a bit of a wild story you may be interested in. It involves crazy cat Facebook groups, the black market, and lots of drama. This might not be something you care to get into, but as I was going down this rabbit hole in an effort to save my cat, I felt like it was so weird and crazy that I have to get this story out. So here I am. Intriguing.
0: Going down a rabbit hole to save your cat. Wow. I'm just
1: trying to picture that right now. Okay, so Allison went on to say that in March of this year, her kitten, Winnie Winslow, contracted a rare but increasingly common virus called FIP, or feline infectious Perion, per, peritonitis. Perion. Peritonitis. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh my God. You've been working on this for hours and you don't know how to pronounce Weeks.
1: it. Wait, say that word again. Perit-
0: per- it looks like peritonitis based on the Okay, notes. we'll go with that.
1: We're going to call it FIP. This is where her journey down the rabbit hole began. So let's start there. She sent pictures of Winnie. He was one of those floofy long-haired cats, like multicolored in different shades of white and gray. He had clear blue eyes.
0: Like a silver fox type?
1: Silver, Like a white fox. Okay. So Allison describes him as sweet, snuggly, curious, and social. She said, give him a treat and he would be your best friend. That's like you, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah, but also it's just, okay, cats cats are more interesting than they're given credit for. They do have individual personalities, but I like when people try to describe how like special unique their cat is. Like It likes food. It's like, he likes treats. <laughs> All right, yeah. well, this is unique. he meows meow sometimes. Anyway. I would
1: pick him up and perch him on my shoulder, and he would just hang out there while I would about my day. His meow sounded like a little question.
0: Aw. That's
1: yeah, sweet, right? So Allison and her partner adopted Winnie at four months old. And then when he was about eight months old, they noticed one evening that he seemed listless, lethargic, kind of sad, and that his third eyelid was showing. I've never had a cat before other than a a two-week period when I had a mouse. That cat's name was Kitty Purzog. And uh, I've never heard of the third eyelid, but it's a mucous membrane in the corner of the eye, and it's generally not visible if the cat is healthy. So clearly something was wrong. So they brought Winnie to the vet the next day and got some tests done. And as they were waiting for the test results, Winnie suddenly got a lot worse. So Allison says that he was very clearly in pain and his eyes were swollen and yellow. So they rushed him to the emergency vet. And the vet said that he was pretty certain. It was this FIP, feline infectious peritonitis. <laughs> Say that again, Jesse.
0: <laughs> Perit- isn't it peritonitis? I'm just literally reading the yes. word, Katie.
1: Okay. So this was a dire diagnosis. It typically occurs in young cats. so it's And it's almost always a death sentence. It's caused by a coronavirus, uh, though not COVID. And there are two forms of it, wet and dry. Not unlike the two forms of cat food, oddly.
0: Do they diagnose FIP via anonymous internet surveys? Both of them, yes.
1: Both of them are fatal, but there are differences in some of the symptoms. So with wet FIP, there's an accumulation of fluid in the chest. Symptoms include loss of appetite, fever, diarrhea, weight loss, also symptoms of long covid with dry FIP, there's also loss of appetite, fever, diarrhea, weight loss, but there's no fluid buildup, and they could have additional neurological symptoms like trouble standing or walking, seizures, paralysis, vision loss, and then death, often within days or weeks. It's a really bad disease, and it typically affects cats under two, so that's sort of especially sad, and there's no vaccine against it. There is, however, a treatment, but as Allison's vet told her, She could not get it from him. Why not? So the treatment is an antiviral. It's actually a variant of remdesivir. And that might sound familiar to you because it's also used to treat COVID. So this particular variant is called GS441524. We're going to call it GS for short. And the patent is owned by Gilead, which is, of course, a giant pharmaceutical company that specializes in antiviral drugs like remdesivir. And the reason Allison couldn't get it from her vet is because Gilead refuses to license this drug as a treatment for cats, which means it's not FDA-approved for FIP, so it's illegal to prescribe it for that use in the U.S. Gilead doesn't comment on this. The working theory is that they won't license this for cats because they think it will hinder the remdesivir market because the drugs are so similar that any adverse effects in cats might have to be investigated in safe- for safety issues in humans, This is apparently pretty standard in the industry. Drug companies don't create problems for themselves if they don't have to.
0: Okay, but does it work for cats?
1: It does. This is not snake oil. This is actually as close to a miracle drug as it gets. So there's an FIP researcher who also was a cat lover at UC Davis. His name is Niels Peterson, and he's been studying FIP since he was in vet school in the 1960s. And around 2015 or so, he got in touch with someone he knew at Gilead. This person sent him a bunch of different drug molecules to test, including GS44152. So Peterson started trials. And in that first trial, he infected 10 cats with FIP, which he's a cat lover. This has just got to be a wrenching experience for someone like him. And then he he just
0: picked like really shitty cats. cats. Yeah, shitty cats.
1: And then he administered GS441524. Every one of them survived. And in 2019, he published a field study of 31 cats with FIP. So that was cats who contracted FIP naturally, not in the lab. And of those 31, five died of FIP or were euthanized with FIP. One died of unrelated causes. And 24 survived and remained healthy by the time of publication. That's crazy. So that's a survival rate of about 80% for a disease that kills nearly all of the cats who get it if left untreated. But, of course, this is a small study but it's still promising, right? And besides the study, there's just loads of anecdotal evidence that it works, including from vets. So Allison's vet, he told her – I'm paraphrasing here. You may have read some stuff online about some drugs for FIP. Normally with FIP, I would say that it's fatal, but I have been proven wrong a few times now. He told her that he couldn't help her get it, but if she could get it herself, he would help administer it.
0: So how is she supposed to do that?
1: Okay. Jesse, this is where this becomes a story about the Internet, because even though Gilead won't license this drug, there's still a need for it. So naturally, a robust black market has emerged to fill the void, because if you know cat ladies and cat gents and cat embies, you know they will do anything to save their cat babies, including paying thousands of dollars for black market drugs from China that they inject into their pets.
0: How How much does it cost?
1: Okay, so that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Just a few years ago, it could cost upwards of $10,000 for a a full course of treatment. And yes, people did pay that. The price has come down a lot since then, but it's based on where you get it, the size of the cat, how much you need, if it's wet or dry FIP, what brand of drug you get, et cetera. So we're going to talk about the cost again in a little while. But before we do, you need to meet Robin Kintz. Uh, There have been a few articles published about the FIP black market in the last few years. The Atlantic published one in 2020, so did Business Insider, a number of other. Outlets like smaller outlets have published them as well, and a woman named Robin Kins is mentioned in almost all of them because Robin is one of the more prominent figures in this world, and she's the founder of a Facebook group called FIP Warriors, which has become a primary source for people to get black market GS. Here is how the Atlantic story begins: When Robin Kins's two kitchen, fuck. when Robin Kins's two kitchen, fuck. When Robin Kintz's two kitchens...
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, keep it. No, you're not. Three times in a row, you said when Robin Kintz's two kitchens, which is not a thing, and we're keeping that in. Fine. If you screw something up twice, you can edit it out. Okay. When Robin Kintz's two kitchens... Kittens.
1: Fiona and Henry contracted a fatal cat disease last year. She began hearing of a black market drug from China. The use of the drug, known as GS441524 is based on legitimate research from UC Davis, but the ways to get it seem less so. Quote, it was, if you want to save your cat and send me thousands of dollars and I'll DHL you some unmarked vials, she says. And she did. Kintz transferred the thousands of dollars, got the unmarked vials from China, and then injected the clear liquid into her dying cats every day for months. So the Atlantic story goes on to explain that when Robin was trying to get this drug, she joined some Facebook groups for FIP and posted in the groups asking about how to get GS. But in those groups, at the time, the discussion of how to procure the drug had been banned. And at the time, this was really controversial in those groups, with some people arguing like, yes, we should be doing everything we can to save the cats. And some people being like, no, this is black market medicine. Don't touch it. One of the more prominent people in the latter camp, so the anti-black market camp, was Susan Gingrich. She's the sister of Newt Gingrich. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Her cat, Bria, died of FIP in in 2005, and she started a fund for research into the disease. She was also an administrator of one of these groups that banned discussing black market GS. And her preferred tactic, and she wasn't alone in this, was to pressure Gilead into licensing it, but that hasn't worked yet. And as you might imagine, black market drugs are controversial among vets too. Like you're feeding an illicit trade, some will absolutely refuse to get involved, and others, like Allison's vets, will offer to help with the injections.
0: So, yeah, what- and, and and like the steelman case here is that I, of course, sympathize with people trying to save their pets. The steelman case is the more this black market emerges, there could just be some horrible unintended consequences of totally. like scammers start sending fake GS, blah blah blah.
1: Absolutely. So when Robin's cats got sick and she posted in these groups, some other women in the group DM'd her and gave her some advice, which that's how Robin got the drugs herself. Then she started a new group called FIP Warriors, where talk about GS not only wasn't banned, it was encouraged. That was the point of the group to get people to medicine.
0: Wait, did her? Are we going to get to this, or did her cats get better? Her cats got better. Yeah. Okay, good. You buried the lead.
1: Uh, just, I don't know. It just didn't seem. There's so much drama we're getting into that just didn't seem that important. But you're right.
0: Well, wow, you don't care about you don't care about cats, or at cats all?
1: anyway. Yeah, okay. And at first that's what the group was, right? Like it was volunteer run, it wasn't an official nonprofit, but it wasn't a money-making venture. It was just people trying to save these cats. Robin made that clear in the beginning. She said, "No one involved in this group takes commission and it actually costs volunteers money for things like shipping and the, they work to donate the drugs for people who can't afford it, et cetera. She told the publication 10, it's one of these medium verticals, quote it's like the Dallas Buyers Club when patients couldn't get the AIDS meds they needed in this country legally. That's kind of what I'd like to think we're doing for cats. But things have changed since that group started. For one, the group is huge. It currently has over 43,000 members and 26 moderators. And there are spinoff groups and groups in different countries and different languages, et cetera. And the mission has expanded since the beginning. Like they started testing drugs. See, most of the black market drugs are coming from China. And as you can imagine, the quality controls can be subpar. So how are people supposed to know what they're getting, right? So GS sellers will approach the group. And if they're unknown, if they haven't worked with them before, the mods will ask for samples to send to cat rescues. And if the cats survive, it works. And if they don't, they don't work with the seller. Or at least they sh- That's
0: interesting. This is like out of like an econ textbook of how like a, a black mm-hmm. market can like establish trust, and yeah. it's interesting.
1: Plus, the group isn't just connecting cat owners with the sellers; they're also distributing themselves, or at least they were. There have been some changes lately due to some scandal that we'll get to shortly. But what you need to know is that the drugs weren't going directly from the manufacturer to the buyer. Rather, they were getting shipped from China or Hong Kong to the admins of the Facebook group, and then the admins would sell them to buyers. Or, to use the term that people in the group use, the admins would sell them to parents. Like cat parents. Now, this is the sort of thing – the cat parents. This is the sort of thing that used to make me roll my eyes at pet people, like calling themselves parents. But now that Moose is in my life and I regularly refer to Jana as mother, as in Moose, go ask your mother to take you out. I'm busy. I get it. I'm going to try to refrain from calling the cat owner's parents to avoid triggering anyone but this is what it's called in this world.
0: Okay, so the the but the moderators of FIP Warriors control the supply of drugs
1: not the moderators, the admins. It's sort the of admins, a hierarchy, sorry. right? So the
0: moderators The admins are the people who like founded it and sit at the very top,
1: right? Well, Robin sits at the top. Below her are admins who are basically independent contractors who sell or who 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 sell and distribute the drugs. The mods are the people who uh, essentially run the Facebook group and connects buyers with admins. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the Facebook group FIP Warriors, it's not really a discussion group like a standard Facebook group. Here's how it works. You request to join, you answer a few questions, and if you're admitted into the group, you post that your cat has FIP, most people include pics, and then a moderator will comment on the post, basically saying, check your DMs, and then the mod will turn the messages off on the post. Got it? Yeah. So I joined the group, I did exactly this. Wait,
0: is this why Is this why you asked me to pose as a kitty cat and take <laughs> those photos of me?
1: You're not the furry, I asked the furry to do that. Okay. Just a big picture of Trace in a cat costume. (laughs) So I joined the group. I did this, minus the pic. And I got the following message in my inbox. I'm sorry your sweet kitty is not well, but for FIP, you are in the right place for information and support. FIP is no longer a death sentence. That said, FIP is extremely aggressive. This was from a mod. And this person said she was going to connect me with an admin. And then shortly after that, I got a message from the admin who sent me to a website with general information about FIP and GS and asked me a bunch of questions about my non-existent cat. So I had to Google things like how much do cats weigh and do cats get fevers and if so what temperature. Learned a lot about cats.
0: So at this point, you're you're deep undercover pretending to be a cat mom. A cat lady. Yes. But you know nothing about cats. Right.
1: So I asked right up front how much it was going to cost, and the admin said it depends, but most cats can be treated under $1,500. It, it really does depend. There are all of these factors, like the size of the cat, the type of FIP, the brand of drug, whether you get pills or injections, etc. And the price has done, gone down a ton in recent years. Like it used to cost upwards of $10,000 to get a full course of treatment. And one of the things the admins help people figure out is what drugs they need and how much to administer. So here's an example. You have a six-pound cat who needs a regular dose, and you choose one of the more cost-effective brands. So that could be as low as just under $800 for the total course, which, by the way, takes 84 days of either injections, pills, or both. And if you have a six-pound cat and the disease is in the brain, it could be as low as $1,200 if you go with the cheaper brands. Now, if you get an admin who is making a living off of this, they, and when I say they, I mean she, it's almost all women might recommend brands that offer the highest commission to the admin. We'll get to this later. But in that case, the treatment for that same cat could be $1,500 at the regular dose, 2,500 for the higher dose. So I've seen reports from the last year of people paying up to $4,000 and less than $700. E- either way, like it's not cheap. That doesn't include the vet bills, but it can save your cat's life. So a lot of people are willing to pay whatever they can.
0: And, and part of the... the... Price jumping around is literally just like people taking commissions off it, and sometimes yes. charging you for more medicine than your cat needs. Y-
1: well, no, it's not charging you for more medicine than your cat needs. It's the brand. We're gonna get all into this later.
0: Okay. This reminds you. I just I read a book by Ben Goldacre about like the shit pharmaceutical companies poll, and it it sounds not unlike that. Although coming from a different people, but what would you um if Moose had uh. CIP, K9, whatever, whatever. How much would you pay to save moose's life?
1: Uh, so I have given a lot of thought to this question and I think I can say a hundred million dollars.
0: That sounds about right. Yeah.
1: Okay, so back in the Facebook group, the admin explained what could I, I could expect. One, I will get you dosing based on a description of symptoms. Two, I will connect you with someone locally to get the first few vials. Three. Then once you have done the first injection, we can get you set up with your first order. So basically, you want to get the meds as quickly as possible because this disease progresses really fast. And so they have what they call vial holders all around the U.S. and even around the world who keep the medicine on hand and distribute it locally. So they connect you with a vial holder. You know, so if if my cat actually really existed and really did have FIP, I'd probably meet someone in Seattle and get that first vial. And then once you've started, you can order more for yourself. So the admin said she would help me figure out if I needed injections or could just do the pills. And that basically depends on how sick your cat is, if it's dehydrated or not. I also asked about the legality of the arrangement. And she said, quote, it is not an issue for you since you are using it for personal use, but it is an unapproved med. Technically, there are patent laws not being adhered to. So gray area, basically, like... I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm the end user, but somebody else might get in trouble. Gotcha. Okay. And so, Jesse, this whole situation has all the ingredients of major internet drama. You've got a dubiously legal marketplace. You've got sick pets. You've got Facebook groups. You've got money. You've got desperate people, most of whom, from my perusal of the group, are women, cat ladies. And these cat ladies are just desperate to help their cats. The posts are really heartbreaking, like their cats are dying in front of their eyes. And there's a cure out there, but instead of just picking it up from the vet, they're begging strangers to take their money. It's got all the ingredients of the Molotov cocktail of internet bullshit, which is exactly what has happened, ultimately leading to the splintering of the group, and a major fall from grace for Robin
0: Kent. Yeah. I was going to say, as you were describing this, it just – every sort of this will not end well alarm bell is screaming or meowing, if you will. But take me through what happened. Dude,
1: it's it's knitting drama. It's dress drama. It's cat lady drama. It's everything. <laughs> it's all of it at once. Okay. So the drama appears to have started not long after the group was founded because FIP Warriors has clearly tapped into a market here and other people want in on it. And some other people were there first. There's a company called Cure FIP that started in 2019, and whoever runs it has this wonderful habit of airing dirty laundry on the website. So they wrote a post about how, a blog post about how FIP Warriors really has helped tens of thousands of people get this drug. But as the group grew, the mission crept from just like wanting to help cats to making money. And Cure FIP claims that they now engage in these unsavory practices, like like pushing particular vendors that Robin Kintz has agreements with. Rather than just looking out for what's best for the cats, they claim that Kintz and her admins use, quote, scare tactics to dissuade cat owners from buying brands they don't represent and that they, quote, demand fees from GS manufacturers to represent their products to cat owners. They also claim that FIP warriors will sell bad drugs and then try to undercut the competition by claiming that other distribution networks are scammy or that their patients have high relapse rates. And they claim that they don't make money off of this when they do. And so whoever runs this company also posted screenshots of a public feud between Robin Kent and a company called Mution. Uh, This was someone from Mution accusing Robin of lying about not taking a commission, covering up for brands of drugs that killed cats, and cheating FIP parents out of donations that were meant for them. So this person from Mushin, her name is Nikki, she posted all of these DMs between her and Robin that showed Robin negotiating commission and fees, and the commission was pretty fucking high. Like, at the time... Mushin was selling vials of their product for $358, and Robin got 58 of those dollars. Wow. They also paid her a monthly fee of $2,000, which Robin then renegotiated. Nikki asked her to make sure that Mushin would be protected from the admins, and Robin renegotiated her fee to $3,000. They sent this money, by the way, to her in $10 bills and a box of cash.
0: That's awesome. Um, that's how we get paid for this podcast. But so. So, Mution, the company, Mution is the company that makes the drug and sells it to uh, people in the States or wherever. W- why would they need protection from the admins? I don't get that.
1: Okay. So, Robin allowed, this was unusual, but Robin allowed Mution admins. In the group itself,
0: so can't okay, just say this Ben Goldacre book about the pharmaceutical industry. There's this whole thing he has about how crazy it is that pharmaceutical reps are allowed inside like hospitals and doctors' offices. It's mm-hmm. all the same shit, but with cats.
1: Yeah. So, so here's a here's a quote from an insider, former admin. I asked her about this uh, this protection racket, and here's how she explained it. Most of the admins and also non-admins objected to the fact that Mushin charged 358 per vial of medication, and also their sales reps were extremely aggressive. Musion was getting special treatment as far as sales reps being allowed in the group, special mentions in posts and documents, etc. At the same time, there were other equivalent ba- brands from 75 to $140. Most of the admins wanted Mushin removed from the group, and so protecting them by protecting they basically what nikki is saying is basically make sure that we don't get kicked out of the group don't kick us out of the group even though the admins want it
0: so that her her reps would continue to have sorry mushen's reps would continue to have direct access to these desperate people trying to cure their cats exactly gotcha
1: okay so nikki and robin Mution and robin have some sort of falling out i guess she didn't protect them so well after all Nikki posts all of these screenshots. The screenshots circulate. Some of the admins get pissed because it is increasingly clear that Robin, and not just Robin, is profiteering. Uh, We talked to a former admin named Celeste. She was on FIP Warriors' executive committee, and she explained how the commission worked. So the commission varied, but at the top, most of the admins would get a $35 commission per vial of GS that they sold. Robin clearly got more. We saw from those DMs that she was getting $58 for a vial of Mution. Celeste says that in the six months prior to leaving FIP Warriors, she was assigned 265 new cases. She made a commission of $22,000 in that time, and she used her commission to pay for the treatment of 40 cats in her area. And by the way, Aww. yeah, Celeste also runs a cat rescue specifically for FIP cats. So when I chatted with her, she was caring for four of these FIP creatures in her home. She's either a saint or a crazy person, maybe both. So Celeste pulled Robin's shipping records. She shared this with me. For that same six months. And during that time, Robin had only 18 new cases, but she was middlemanning for other admins, so she was shipping the drugs herself, selling and shipping herself. She made half a million dollars in that time.
0: Half, in six months, she made half a million dollars as a Shipper. cat medication middlewoman? Plus whatever fees she was getting from GS vendors. Oh my God. This is crazy. Right.
1: So Celeste was estimating this based on the shipping, but she seems to know what she's talking about. And it gets crazier, Jesse, because Robin was not the only person who profited handsomely off of this business. And I should say, I don't think there's anything wrong with profiting off of your work. Robin put this whole thing together. She's providing a a necessary service. But the problem was that for a long time, FIP Warriors promoted itself as a volunteer-run group, even a nonprofit. It's just not. Celeste told us that several of the admins were making so much money that they quit their jobs. Two of them purchased second homes. One remodeled her house, and there was just no transparency that this was a money-making venture and a very lucrative one at that. In fact, Celeste said that when people needed refills, some of the admins would jack up the price so they could make more money off of people when they were at their most
0: desperate. Hey, that's just dynamic pricing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And some customers complained that when they initially tried to get the products, they weren't shown price lists. The admins were really aggressive at signing them up at first, but then once they started treatment, they weren't available to answer questions. And to be clear, some of the admins were really good and benevolent and did send priceless and were transparent and were genuinely doing this because they love cats and they want to help as many as possible. But it does appear that some of these people were just in it to make money, for instance.
0: Kitty, what if they loved cats and money equally? That's actually, yeah. Remember? It could be both. Yeah.
1: Okay, in 2021, postal inspectors got a tip about a shipment en route from Hong Kong to a woman named Nancy Ross in Oregon. Ross was an admin, and the shipment contained, this is according to the Oregonian, quote, 14 yellow boxes advertising facial masks for all skin types and at least a handful of purple foil packets advertising chewable dietary supplements. Each of the boxes and packets had a caricature of a white cat on the front. (laughs) So, as you would guess... These boxes actually contained GS-44524. This was reportedly the fifth shipment Ross had received in three months. So the FDA gets involved, and a criminal inspector from the FDA—I didn't know that they exist, but they do—joins the Facebook group and messages Ross and tells her she needs the drug. But Ross herself was not a seller. She was one of several admins who didn't actually do selling and shipping themselves. She connects the agent with an admin named Nicole Randall, who lives in Texas— and who, according to an FDA affidavit, was the ringleader of this. I asked our former admin friend Celeste about this, and she said it's bullshit. Nicole was not the ringleader. She was basically an independent contractor like all of the other admins. She just did it at a much bigger scale and made more money off of it. And Nancy Ross, by the way, she never sold GS herself. She connected parents with admins like Nicole, and the reason she got those shipments wasn't to sell them, it was to send them out to vial holders across the U.S., so the people who keep the GS on hand for quick supply. As far as I know, she wasn't charged with anything, but Nicole Randall was. And the FDA found that she was a big seller, and I mean really big. The Oregonian reported that she told these vendors in Hong Kong and China to mislabel the goods as beauty products, and then she sold them directly to consumers between $65 and $385 a vial, which is a big markup from the vendors themselves. So the investigation found a spreadsheet of where she kept her sales. She sold almost 60,000 vials and over 230,000 pills from July 2020 to June 2022. And Jesse, from those sales, guess, just guess how much she made. $2 million. $9.6 million.
0: Oh my God. These like these are like the, the um, scar faces of cats.
1: Yes. This is the, what's the guy's name from um, that meth TV show? Walter White. Yeah, she's Breaking the back. Walter White. She's not making it. All right, bad, bad, bad comparison. Her assets were seized, her money, her cars, her houses. And when you're making profits like that and overcharging your buyers, it's a little hard to argue that this is all for the good of the cats, right? And this was not actually the first raid. The first raid was even weirder. This was an elderly woman who was mistakenly accused of importing testosterone and human growth hormone. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> they arrest her and she's just jacked.
1: Yeah. I have these muscles naturally. (laughs) She was taking it to teenagers. In that case, it was the DEA who conducted the raid, and they turned it over to local sheriffs, and they basically told this woman to stop, and nothing came of it. But it did freak out some of the admins, and several of them quit. Okay, so after the second raid, the Nicole Randall raid, Celeste says that Nicole told them after the raid that when the numbers came out, they were going to be mad, and they absolutely were. Celeste said, that money could have saved so many cats. And she's right. And uh, after that, a lot of the admins didn't want to touch the drugs themselves, so they started connecting buyers directly with sellers rather than shipping it themselves. And at that point, communication among the admins and robins was declining. Some of the admins were like, "Look, we are not here to profit. We are here to save cats. And you, if you greedy fuckers would stop treating this like a money printing machine, the feds wouldn't be interested, and the raids would stop. And besides that." They were pissed that, tra- that Robin wasn't transparent with them about the deal she was making with vendors. There was also a PayPal account that people could donate to. It was controlled by Robin. She was supposed to use this to pay into the Warrior Treatment Fund, which was a, a fund to treat cats in need if their parents or whoever couldn't afford the drug. Celeste said that she would tell her clients who couldn't afford to buy the drugs about this fund and then recommend that they get they get the drugs from the fund. Not a single one of them were approved to use it. And she said that after many requests, Robin finally provided statements for the treatment fund, and she hadn't actually donated anything from that PayPal account. Oh, damn. And this all – yeah, this all went against the supposed admission of FIP Warriors. Celeste said, FIP Warriors was supposed to be brand neutral, so if the medication works, we will support you, and we will trial and test medications to keep you updated with what is working and what is not.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could, you could totally get why, like, the – I don't know what the proportion was, the handful or more of like people in this for the right reasons would feel totally betrayed by all this profiteering, not only profiteering, but profiteering that directly harmed the group. Exactly. And
1: one of the major points of tension here was Robin's management style. So according to to Celeste, it was basically, it was chaotic. She rewarded people she liked and punished those she didn't, And one of the admins she didn't like was a woman I'm going to call Sarah. This is a pseudonym. She's a very interesting person. She's an engineer at one of the big tech companies. In her spare time, she races cars and does freelance FIP research. And she's actually co-authored papers on FIP. Uh, So Sarah knows what she's talking about when it comes to this disease, and she told me that in the beginning when she showed up to FIP Wars, she was full of idealism about helping these cats. She's like Celeste in that she never looked at this as a way to make money. She has a job. So she started as an admin in spring of 2020, and over time, she started to realize that this was not a purely philanthropic organization, and some people were making – Not just money to cover their time. They were getting rich off of this. Not everyone, of course. Maybe not even a large number of them. But Sarah didn't like this, and she didn't like how Robin talked about the group. She told me, quote, As time went on, I saw the amount of commission rising, and I noticed Robin spoke about warriors the way you would a business. Global brand, competitors, grow the business, etc. Things she said about money donated to a treatment fund that was supposed to help cats that couldn't afford treatment— About money she was getting from suppliers, communications with suppliers, it didn't add up. At the same time, things were coming to light, like the revelation that she had been making money from Mushin to promote them. They were sending her cash in a box. She said it was a mistake. She wouldn't do it again. But then there were occasional hints that she was getting something from other suppliers, too. So Sarah was suspicious of Robin. And in addition to saying she played favorites with vendors who paid her, Sarah says that she smeared people in vendors she didn't like. Quote, it was becoming clearer that we weren't there to protect and advise. Warriors was about selling, Sarah told me. So things came to a head with one brand in particular. Sarah says there are problems with this brand in terms of quality control, and they suspected it was actually killing cats. So most of the admins refused to recommend it, but a handful of them kept promoting that, including Robin. And after a few admins in Canada started raising the alarm bell about this, Sarah says they were, quote, summarily removed, blocked, and publicly smeared. They were kicked out for being whistleblowers in the group.
0: <laughs> oh my god, this is so crazy. Yeah,
1: and Sarah says that the admins, Robin, kicked out had evidence that Robin and another woman in the group had invested in this company whose drug was killing cats. What? Yeah, I saw the evidence oh by god. the way. And Sarah says that throughout all this,
0: she, wait, and the evidence was compelling.
1: It was yeah, it was DMs about the about their investments.
0: Okay. Oh, my God.
1: So Sarah says that through all this, she'd been standing up to Robin about the profiteering and the missing treatment fund donations and about promoting this bad brand and making policies that seemed more about profit than helping cats. Sarah said Robin and, quote, others who were firmly in the for-profit camp had become openly hostile to me. But the problem was that it seemed like there was no way to leave without being smeared. And I was also concerned about and emotionally invested in the well-being of cats I was helping. She, that's Robin, promoted a toxic culture and formed a clique that agreed with her. It was emotionally draining and traumatic. At a conference that several of us attended in July, one of them literally brought me
0: to tears in public. This gives a whole new meaning to the idea of a cat fight.
1: (laughs) It really does. A cat lady fight. So Sarah doesn't like Robin. Robin doesn't like Sarah. And then last month, all this comes to a head— when Robin finds out that Sarah has sent meds that weren't one of the brands that were sold in the group to someone as a donation, Sarah says this was typical behavior. They distribute what they called trial vials all the time. But Robin learns about this, and she tells the executive committee that Sarah is breaking the rules. So the executive committee has three members, Robin, another admin, and Celeste. Celeste is on Sarah's side. So on March 5th, Robin and this other woman on the executive committee both vote to kick Sarah out. Celeste is a dissenting vote. Four days later, Sarah is supposed to be officially kicked out, and the other admins are supposed to be informed that she's gone. Celeste is pissed about this. She doesn't want Sarah kicked out, and she's afraid this decision will exacerbate what's already a very tense situation, so she decides to act. Early that morning, before Sarah could get kicked out, she goes into the Facebook group and she removes the admin rights of Robin and the other admins, which prevented Robin from removing (laughs) Sarah from the group.
0: What? That's not very good OPSEC that you're just letting – how it's like so easy.
1: I don't totally understand the dynamics of how the Facebook admin yeah. situation works, but Celeste says, My thought was it would force us to talk as an admin group about it. Instead, Robin removed about half the admins and moderators from everything else and then spent the day telling parents they would need new admins and interviewing admins and mods to find out where their loyalties lay.
0: So it's like a, a real palace coup. Yes, Or a real palace meow. (laughs) So (laughs) stupid.
1: So that's the start of the big split. They involved a mediator, and he was able to calm things down and help them come to some agreements. Robin reinstated them, and Celeste says that lasted about a day, and then she removed them again. And then so six weeks ago, Celeste, Sarah, and a bunch of the other admins severed entirely from FIP Warriors and started a new group called FIP Global Cats. This group is much smaller Right now, they have less than 4,000 members, 14 admins, including Celeste and Sarah, and 10 mods. Celeste says their goal is to, quote, support treatment, work towards a legal cure, be transparent, drop commission, and our treatment fund will be supported by a 501c3 with a governing board rather than a single individual. There have been some hiccups. Celeste says some vendors won't work with them because they're afraid of pissing Robin off, but they hope that by offering cheaper meds because they aren't taking commission, more people will have access to GS and more people will will be able to pay it forward by donating to those who can't afford it.
0: It's just like crazy how like you can like just fucking let people have these drugs for their dying cats. Oh my God.
1: Yeah, it's pretty wild. I reached out to Robin to give her a chance to comment or to refute these allegations from Celeste and Sarah and others. I didn't hear back from her. Uh, Celeste provided a mountain of documentation to back up what she said, so I do trust that she's a reliable narrator. I still would have liked to get Robin's perspective on this. Um, I did talk to a mediator, the, the mediator who tried to resolve this this fight. His name is Peter Cohen. His cat, Smokey, was one of the first cats treated at the trials at UC Davis, and he runs a nonprofit called Zen by Cats. So Peter is, by nature, he's a peacemaker. He's much more sympathetic to Robin, and he does have an interesting perspective on this. He actually owns the trademark to FIP Warriors, and he licenses it to Robin for a dollar a year.
0: Well, that's good, because she's hard, she's hard up on cats. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: They've been working together since the beginning. And he said that from the very beginning... It's been this real uphill battle because everybody hated them. Drug companies hated them. Vets hated them. Advocates hated them. Even Dr. Peterson, the guy at UC Davis who discovered this cure, he was wary of the group. And so that was the Im- environment that, this, that they emerged from. And he also said that in the beginning, when it really was all volunteer, some of these admins ended up working 10 hours a day on this. They needed to get paid for their work. And he said that While FIP warriors really should have been transparent about the the commission that the admins were taking, lawyers told them not to post this anywhere because they were selling black market drugs without a license. So even if they wanted to be transparent, they kind of couldn't be. And it is true. Admins really could face some legal issues besides that. For instance, practicing medicine without a license. That's illegal. Peter is currently trying to figure out a workaround for this by using admins to collect info uh, from the cat parents and then using volunteer vets to do the actual dosing. But of course, there's barriers to this too. There are vets who won't touch this. It takes time to establish a network like this. And meanwhile, cats are still getting the virus and dying from it.
0: Yeah, it seems like a really, I mean, it like we said up top, it seemed like a situation rife for corruption. And uh, none of this should be, it's a crazy story, but it shouldn't be surprising.
1: Yeah. From Peter's perspective, he told me, he said, quote, there are no villains here. Celeste and Sarah would probably say that there is a clear villain here and it's Robin. But to me, the much bigger villain here is Gilead. Like, yes, it does appear that Robin was doing a lot of shady shit and taking advantage of her position. But this would all be avoidable if Gilead would just license the fucking drug. The black market would instantly disappear and way more cats would be saved, but they're probably never going to do this. So one of the things that Peter does with Zen by Cats is help fund research into new FIP drugs because the only way out of the black market is if someone else replaces a new drug, so and even better would be a vaccine so cats don't get this disease in the first place. So Peter raises money for this. He says that nine out of every $10 that he raises goes directly into research. Uh, I, I do trust him. Uh, we'll post a, a link to his organization in the show notes. <laughs>
0: Are you sure Peter isn't just Robin? <laughs> I think there's no bad people here. Robin was in a difficult yeah. situation. Just yeah. a
1: very nice what, guy.
0: What, what about the uh, the listener and her cat, Winnie? Did... did when he turned out okay?
1: Sadly, no. Allison tried to save him, but with the cost of tests, x rays, and overnight stay at the emergency vet, and plus the medication, she just couldn't afford it. And she says that by the time they figured out what was going on, he could barely walk. He was mostly blind. He didn't recognize her, and he was in terrible pain. So she chose what she thought was the most humane option. She told me On his final evening, he suddenly knew who we were and snuggled with us on the couch. He slept with us the whole night, and then in the morning of April 3rd, he was put to sleep.
0: You probably had trouble reading that, because animals are the only things you care about.
1: It's not a dog, Jesse. It's not a dog.
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, a very sad ending to the story.
0: Yeah. A crazy story.
1: Crazy story. I had no idea that this disease existed. I had no idea about this black market for the disease. Uh,
0: yeah. I So, yeah, part of me wants to blame Gilead. Part of me uses it as like it, it almost could be like a libertarian parable because yeah. you would think there would be some reason i don't know how any of this should work some sort of carve out where like yes you can give this disease this this medicine to cats and we're not gonna worry about i don't i don't know it just seems like there should be a solution here that doesn't involve some woman making 10 million dollars off yeah
1: it. and buying Fucking black market drugs from China.
0: I want the pharmaceutical. I want the pharmaceutical execs (laughs) to make ten million dollars off it. That's the natural order of things.
1: Like do pharmaceutical execs not realize how much cat people will pay to save
0: their babies? Come on. Maybe this uh, podcast will raise awareness among. The pharmaceutical executives who have always been our heroes, that they could make even more money and it'll help.
1: And our listeners.
0: Well, thank you again, Katie. Uh, this has been blocked and reported. As always, we are produced with help from Tracy Woodgrains, especially this week in the mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, people keep confusing our voices. I am not Killer Mike. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, Killiad, do better.